Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Harold Sanjin by Patricia Sanjin with permission of 10 of those publishing companies, and we are reading Chapter 12, Part 2. Just as he could not speak uncharitably, so he did hate hearing gossip, nor would he ever tolerate secret behind-the-back methods. His own method of approach he once declared when speaking on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10-17. through 17. It hath been declared unto me by them which are of the household of Chloe. I don't know the first thing about Chloe, but some of the people in her household had told Paul about some very discreditable stories about the Corinthians, and Paul gives the name of his informant. I am not a person who has the slightest appreciation of listening to scandal, and I have a very simple method when a man tells me a shabby story. I say, by the way, I might like to mention this. Have you any objection to my using your name as the authority for the story? Oh, he often says, I wouldn't have my name mentioned for the world. Then I say, please don't inflict me with it any further. There are certain cases when, in a godly way, you have to listen and hear something to someone's discredit. But be sure of this, that you always give the name of the person who told you. They have no right to tell if they don't want their names mentioned. And unless you are prepared to be identified as the member of the household of Chloe, don't tell me any more, Paul would have said. But when all was said and done, the most striking and obvious thing about Mr. Sanjin was his joyfulness. At first sight, it may have appeared a a matter of temperament, but he certainly was blessed with a remarkable, even sunny disposition and exceedingly healthy body. But the roots of his unshakable content and radiant joy went down deep below a mere surface enjoyment of his surroundings. His heart was fixed on the things that could not be shaken, his blessings, as he called them. And that was why he would enjoy his mere mercies with such liberty and freedom from anxiety. We have, all of us, considered at times, no doubt, he said, when speaking of spiritual blessings in Ephesians, the distinction which we may fairly make between our blessings and our mercies. I have good health, a wife next to none on earth, five children who, as a Scotsman says, are no so bad, and a great many other good things. But they are all mercies and not what the Bible speaks of as blessings. I have many blessings, too. I have peace with God, eternal life, justification by faith, the love of my brethren, a home in heaven. I could go on all evening telling you of my blessings. Now, what is the underlying distinction between mercies and blessings? Just this. Mercies can be swept away in a moment by a bolt from the blue. Health, family, friends may be swept away in a flash. You have no certain tenure of your mercies, but nothing in the universe of God can touch a single blessing God ever gave you. If you have eternal life, you will have it for as long as God lives. And every blessing stands on the further side of the death of Christ. And they are all secure in the death of God's Son. So his joy was secure, and how earnestly he warned his hearers not to cast the anchor of their soul's joy in any earthly love or circumstance. I pray you beyond all this, he cried as he closed his last address on the book of Revelation. Never let any earthly love have power to lift you up to heaven or to cast you down into the dust. Keep the love of Christ on the pedestal of your soul. Always have the Holy of Holies in which the light is burning day and night. And if in the providence of God he smites your life or mine and shatters some vessel so valuable, at the very worst it shall only be with you as it was with Mary in the garden, when her eyes too blinded to able to even see the Lord. 
But when he called his own sheep by name and said, Mary, she answered, Rabona, and it is to say, my great master. He could say, too, in all simplicity and honesty, that he had been set free from those things which in so many cases mar Christians' joy, pride, jealousy, and all the complicated, spoiling manifestations of self-life. He did not often deliberately give a testimony or speak of himself, but sometimes his joy in Christ's deliverance just bubbled over spontaneously. You can do men around you no better service in life, he burst out in the middle of a a talk on Psalm 107, better than giving them a job or a thousand pounds. You can tell them how Jesus Christ has blessed you and made you intensely happy and delivered you from sin, death, pride, and indulgence. You are able to stand before men and tell them that by the grace of God you are free of these things. You are master of the man who walks beneath your hat, and Christ has made you happy, and the world will know it. What will men think of you if they see you going about looking intensely happy? I've had men challenge me on that ground. A man said to me, you're a fool, but I wish I'd got what you've got. Of course he did. What have I got? I've reached an assured haven. I've come inside the breakwater behind the storms and got in living touch with Christ. And life has nothing like the joy of telling people around you what Christ has done. Worry and anxiety mar many people's joy, but he did not worry. An intensely loving, practical, capable, and far-seeing wife, plus an optimistic nature, no doubt contributed to his peace of mind. But he had learned, too, the meaning of the imagination that stops at God. Thou will keep him in double peace. The word is repeated, and it means superlative peace, whose imagination stops at thee was his favorite translation of Isaiah 26.3. This means, he commented, that when there is trouble, anxiety, fear, the common way is to look at the fear and the possible consequences, to lie awake at night wondering what will happen, looking down the dark lane of possibility until you drop wearily asleep with a headache as you deserve. In this verse, Isaiah brings God into the area of himself and refuses to see anything else. You say that is blindness? On the contrary, it is faith. In difficulty, the thing to do is to go to the Lord's presence and say, here are the real facts. I'm not going to conjure up ghostly facts of what might happen. I lay the real trouble before you, and there my imagination stops. I decline to go any further than you. How he loved to discourse on the lion, the adder, and the dragon of Psalm 91, verse 13. The lion represented the sudden crashing traffic tragedies that spring upon a man, the adder, the hidden bitterness that attack and poison his spirit. But, he would cry, his voice vibrant with triumph, nobody ever saw a dragon in their lives. These are the things that might happen but never do. More lives are shadowed by the dragon than by any other beast. But when testing and darkness did come, what then? For while his circumstances were outwardly happy, there were many conflicts and heartaches to do with the care of the churches. In one of his sudden, vivid flashes of imagination, he once described his own reaction to gray days. He was actually speaking of the verse, How shall we sing the song of the Lord in a strange land? Psalm 137.4 The Lord's song never sounds so sweetly as when sung in a strange land. All the noblest songs are born not out of fine days, but out of tragic days. 
and the finest literature that the world possesses in its songs like these. Go back to the days of David in exile, John Bunyan in a Bedford jail, Milford in his blindness, Samuel Rutherford in his banishment, and you'll find that the singing of the Lord's songs is better in a strange land than anywhere else. The Lord Jesus did it. He sat by the side of the sea, and as he washed the foam of death, he sang. He sang as he left the upper room, and when he came out of death, he sang the Lord's song in the land of the resurrection. A strange land? He'd never been there before. Stephen sang the Lord's song when they were stoning him. He said, I see Jesus up there. Saul of Tarsus, over 60 years of age, had been seized and thrust into the stocks. And at midnight, he says, Silas, how about a bit of the Lord's song? Silas might say, this is not the time and place. Let us wait until we get to the meeting. But no, they sang it then and there. And the result was that the jailer was converted and all the prisoners heard it. It was an ever-apparent song, rising from the depths of praise that spilled over in the sparkling enjoyment of life's pleasures. And this increased as he grew older. A friend always remembers their last meeting in London, old Mr. Sanjin sitting on the grass in St. James Park, enjoying the sunshine and the picnic like a schoolboy. Often during the war, he would come and take his daughter out from the hospital and not really at home in any red tape atmosphere. And probably dreaming of the prophets, he once unconsciously seated himself on a seat in outpatients, forbidden by large notices to the public. Sister hurried up, all starch and indignation, but his beaming innocence disarmed even that lady, and she retired smiling. He was so certain that she had come to welcome him to her domain, so cordially delighted to be there. Then he and his daughter would sally forth to the Kew Gardens or a trip up to the Thames, and his radiant pleasure in the expedition would banish for a few hours all the horror and strain of the war and the wounded and the raided nights. She would go back feeling strangely refreshed and balanced. The song was the outward expression of his quiet, deep content in whatever circumstances he happened to find himself, and it had nothing whatsoever to do with the things or comforts. Always remember, he once said, we are followers of Christ who on earth had a peasant's lot, slept upon a hillside, and if he wanted to illustrate his preaching, had to borrow a penny with which to do it. And yet his heart was full of the Father's joy and gladness. And if you walk with God, that joy will stay in your hearts and set them free from the things around you. There was never a moment right up to the last when he would not look trustfully up to God and say, The lions are fallen to me in a pleasant place. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. In a lecture on the 16th Psalm, he once enlarged on that very verse. In the land tenure of Palestine, it was usual to distribute the land every few years. Here are the fields. One is rocky and the other side fertile. It's not fair that one family should always have the fertile or the sterile portion. So there was a fresh allotment every few years. Now, says David, the lot is cast into the lap. The lines have fallen unto me in the pleasant places. But thou hast not where to lay thy head. Pleasant places, says Christ. But, Lord, you dwelt for thirty years in a crowded little cottage, and you were despised and spat upon. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, says Messiah. Who but he would ever say it? And the next time these are things that we should like different, what should we say? Lord, 
Whose hand was it that cast the lot? Who won me that sterile peace to bring fertility out of it? Who gave me that easy bit for a certain part of my life? Thou maintainest my lot. I have a goodly heritage. Think of the Lord Jesus looking up into his Father's face and saying, You have given me a wonderful heritage. What was it? A dozen fishermen? The world's scorn? Contempt? The cross? But he looked ahead and saw the joy that was set before him and said, Father, it is a goodly heritage. This joy attracted and his goodwill made the attraction mutual. It was inevitable that with such seeing thousands of people, he should often forget those with whom he had only had a passing through true spiritual communion. Yet in each country he visited, he gathered to his heart a few names that he would never forget. Names of men, young and old, who enriched his whole life with their friendship. There was Mr. Wayne Hill, who knew him as a young man in the bank, and who wrote after 62 years of unbroken friendship, Surely a love over so many years will be renewed and continued in our Father's house. It cannot die. There was Robert Laylaw in New Zealand, whose goodness to Mr. Sanjin's whole family down the years has been unsurpassed. Mr. Rice H. Clayton in Australia, to whom Mr. Sanjin sent almost his last love and messages. Richard Hill and the Trotters and the Luezos in the States, the Shepherds, Mr. Bowden in Canada, Mr. Northcott, Deck, who reached heaven the day before he did, beloved Mr. Payne and Mr. Lair in Argentine, and Mr. McNair and Mr. Ellis in Brazil, the Flanagans and the Matthews in Ireland, and how he treasured the big family photographs of the Matthew children, always on his bookshelf. Mr. Robert Balchuk in Scotland, with whom he corresponded fully and freely throughout the years, exchanging the spoil of his studies and the love of their hearts. There was something rare and beautiful about these friendships, some of which were old age ones that had stood the test of many years. As young men, some of them had strengthened each other's hands in God, and the old men, the links of devotion and gratitude, mutual respect and inspiration, had become even more firmly welded, and they did not attempt to conceal it. Long since purged of all rivalry or emulation, These old fellow laborers in the gospel could pour out their love for each other without complex or reserve. What a light is thrown on the friendship and the fellowship of many years by the following letter written by Mr. W.E. Vine in his old age to Mr. Sanjin. I must proceed at once to correct the wrong impression conveyed in your letter, the love of which I deeply appreciate. You speak of a large debt of love and a fellowship and help lying to my credit in your ledgers. By what mental process you have arrived at a transmutation of such details from the debt to the credit side, I do not know. I am confident that the figure in my own ledgers is right, and that in my books your credit side is full and your debit practically empty. What I owe you during the years I have known you, you cannot set out in a letter. Your ministry of precept and practice, instruction and example would fill many pages. I do not remember having such a variety of difficult questions to answer as we have had in the week that has passed, and yet what harmony over the whole period. Here, again, the figures in my ledger loom large, grace, patience, forbearance, and a readiness to reserve an expression of opinion, even who might perhaps reasonably have contradicted me. As Mr. Sandin grew older, he loved to pour out his friendship on the younger men who ministered with him, 
and who, as his strength failed, were beginning to take his place. Of the close, lasting friendships in his own country, there is neither space nor time to tell. Dozens of cherished names leap to one's mind. Most of the larger towns and many of the small ones held dear human associations for him. There was one friendship cut short by sudden death, which Mr. Shenzhen never got over, that of Mr. Fred Mitchell, the home director of the China Inland Mission. They had not known each other for more than a dozen years, nor seen each other very often, but they had loved deeply and closely and shared each other's burdens. It was only a short while before his death that Mr. Mitchell wrote of his plans and ended his letter by saying, I do hope that you will be back at Abigail for the prayer conference, if for no other reason that I may have some time with you. You are to me a brother beloved. I am always helped heavenwards when I have a little time with you. I hope it is not selfish. I continue to pray much for every member of your family and thank God that I ever came to know you with continuing and deepening love. The news of the fatal plane crash in May of 1953 was a tremendous blow to Mr. Sanjin. I have lost my dearest friend of his generation, he wrote to one of his children. I saw him seldom, but I have rare memories of times of deep, urgent prayer. It was one of the strongest friendships of my life, and for several days I have felt stunned. I had to write and tell you how rich I am with so many on the other side. And later on, I sent you the account of Fred's memorial service. It still seems quite unreal to me. He has been such a close part of my heart and life that it will take a long time to grasp that he has really gone home. When our Lord was here, he recognized no break in life. He that believeth in me shall never die. Death to him was just an incident unbroken. In his mind, people did not go to an idle heaven, but passed on into life of unbroken service. Faithful over few things, enter thou into joy. I will make thee ruler. He knew much of the responsibilities and rewards of friendship, and he held the responsibilities sacred. Abraham, the friend of God, he once said, If God esteems his friends, has he given us any? If so, how have we treated them? Have we held them or carelessly allowed them to be lost? If so, what answer will you give on the day of accountability? If he gives you what he himself esteems, treasure it. And of his reward, he knew all about that too. As a young man, he had written in his own diary, Oh, the comfort and inexpressible relief of feeling safe with a person, having neither to measure thought or weigh words or to pour out all, chaff and grain together, knowing that a faithful friend sifts out what is worth keeping and with a breath of kindness blows the rest away. And how much of Harold Sanjin's life was spent sifting. How swiftly he forgot the chaff. And with that glowing joy, he treasured the wheat. Well, that really has been a real joy and highlighted many things. I need to really go back and think about some of those things and, and go back to the Word of God and and be encouraged with what the Word of God says, too, about that. I love you. I'm praying for you. And we'll see you tomorrow. And it will be chapter 13, The Preacher. Bye-bye.